What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? This is Sports 360, and I'm your host, Jeff Fennell. Today we have part two of our discussion with economist Ev Ehrlich. Part one was good. Part two is even better. So let's get right to it. You've done, obviously, uh, a lot of work in baseball. I know you've done some work in hockey. Um, uh, are there, you know, you, you, you've, you've uh, spoken about Balmer in, in the NBA with the Clippers. Um, how do you see, and, and you also spoke about the NFL, which of these four majors do you think are, you know, which one is the best positioned? And which one of these perhaps um, – has some of the biggest challenges ahead economically. Huh. Well, I tell you what, let me give you in in the big four, here are uh the four. Basketball is best positioned, followed by baseball, followed by football, followed by hockey. Um basketball uh I say that because it allows for the kind of experimentation that uh, we talked about with Balmer because it's had the best governance in Stern and now Silver. I mean, you put the four commissioners up, you know, on a panel, and if you don't look at Silver and say, I'll take him, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. missed it, (laughs) right? Right. It's very far ahead on global marketing. It's, uh, it, doesn't require the kind of facility specialization uh, that make uh, a ballpark more expensive than an arena. It's got a much larger support system in terms of kids playing and uh, colleges. And, you know, the the whole college D-League thing is there. But compare that to where players come from for baseball. Mm-hmm. Right. It, uh, I, basketball is there. And just between you and me, two guys who love sports, um, my, uh, my son Carl and I were sitting around talking and we agreed with, with excitedly that the most athletic thing you can see on sports on TV is the NBA postseason because guys who are freaky athletic talented to be that strong and that quick and that size are doing amazing things. Right. I still believe the hardest thing to do is to hit a round ball with a round bat. And the, I mean, the most amazing thing that the human race has ever done is hit breaking pitches. <laughs> How did people manage to do that? Go to a ball game and that stuff, man. Right. You know? But, uh, yes, basketball is well-positioned. At the other extreme is regional game. It uh, is not doing anything terribly interesting to break out of that. It has a zero-sum mentality uh, that is uh, over the last couple, over the last decade, the only way hockey has thought to make more money is to take it from players. 
right? Through the, mm-hmm. through the collective bargaining process. Right. It, its growth strategy has been to put hockey where it doesn't belong. It doesn't have any sense of international development. And in fact, um, youth hockey is in bad shape, right? It's, I mean, I think it's worse than Little League, partly because if you're 12 years old and you want to play hockey and you're not good, there's nowhere for you to play. High school teams don't have, I mean, really good, right? At that point, you're either tracked to get into juniors or you're done playing hockey, except Mm -hmm. if you can find some buddies who want to go out on the ice uh, during the winter or play roller skate or something on, you know, inline skates or something like that. Um, So hockey is yet to do the basic stuff that sports leagues need to do. Um, I put football below baseball because uh, there is no solution to the health crisis in football. Yeah, Um, I agree. It's not tackle football, it's collision football. And uh, look, you know, you you know my story. Excuse me, I have a a kid who uh, played four years in college. Right. And uh, he and I worry about you know, he's already given his brain to Boston University and the project there. I got a letter saying, say, your son mm. has given us his brain, and when he dies, here are the instructions. Wow. Can you imagine? Wow. <laughs> I kind of held my breath. Mm-hmm. But there you go. Um, there is no solution to that. I can solve half the problem in one stroke. That is, every contract in football has to be guaranteed, right. and the roster expands by 50%. Because uh, my, my kid never played NFL. He had buddies who did, and they would go into head coaches, name head coaches, head coaches who everyone knows, and say, I've got a stinger in my neck, I've got no sensation in my arm, and be told, well, if you don't play Sunday, you're on injury waiver, and you're out. Wow. And injury, first of all, the words injury waiver being used in the same sentence for guys like us who came up in the baseball system. Right. Like, no, 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 that's an oxymoron. You can't waive a guy because he's injured. You don't throw the trash out the window, right? You own the trash. And if football ever got to a point where they had to own the garbage, right? The guy is hurt. You got to keep paying him. That's how it is. Right, you would make a lot of progress very quickly. Yeah, but that would require a lot of change. <clears throat> Excuse me, Gene Upshaw wasn't even about that. Gene Upshaw was like, "Let's take the money and live with the injuries." I remember being appalled the couple of times I talked to him about what was going on there. But the injury thing in football, I think, is going to alienate it from its market over time. And uh, it's a problem that uh, they don't know how to confront. Excuse me. Baseball's problem is uh, different. And that is that uh, the baseball market looks like me, old and white. Mm. Yeah. The demographic. You go to a ball game. Yep. 
you wonder. Go on, man. Go on. Yeah, no, because you know, I, I remember a couple of years ago, you know, just looking at the All Star games, right? And these are jewel events, right, for basketball and 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 baseball in particular, right? Because you know they're, they're you know mid season, you know, a lot of eyes are are on it, you know, it's televised and everything else. And I remember watching in the same year where you know basketball had like some of the the hottest acts you know yeah. performing during their all-star festivities and and no disrespect to neil diamond but it was like neil diamond was like the, the the focal point of baseball and i'm just thinking to myself you can see right there right you know who the audience <laughs> is and 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 who each of these respective sports are speaking to and so totally different there's no question about it in in baseball um, totally different. And if you want to go out and disrespect Neil Diamond, we won't have any trouble on this call. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. But um, yes, there is a uh, there is a sense in which uh, baseball is more than any other sport sells its past. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. The idea idea that uh, baseball is the only sport, well, I'll say the greatest player ever was Babe Ruth, right? That, you mm-hmm. know, look, I'm one of those, I, I would use a term related to a body part <laughs> that thinks that the greatest running back ever was still Jim Brown mm-hmm. and that my favorite ball uh, hoops player ever was the Dipper, was Goliath Chamberlain, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll fight you. About right. 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 I mean, that's, I'm sorry. I made up my mind about that. Uh, and to some extent, it carries over because uh, when I was a kid, uh, and this was, you know, and this was an interesting thing. Baseball was uh, a way into America. My family, grown up in Queens, had an immigrant and Holocaust background. And the way to get American quick was Mickey Mantle, mm. right? And that and that was true for the in my neighborhood in Queens for Italian kids and and German kids and Polish kids as well as Jewish kids, right? I mean, their ticket to America was the Yankees, and uh, baseball, in some sense, is still selling that venerable tradition. And if you were to tell them that Bonds, let alone Mays or Aaron, or that perhaps one day Harper or Trout, the greater player than Ruth, uh, I mean, they'd all get hives, right? Right. Basketball is so good at this, right? And basketball loves it. Basketball is full of LeBron, Curry, are they equal to Jordan? Right? right? Are they equal right. to the magic bird era? And they and they encourage that discussion, right? In baseball, they're afraid to do that because harps go in the market, right? And, <laughs> right. It's, it's, and the best player in baseball is ready to sign a deal covering his 26-year-old season. Mm-hmm. That's right. He, he is, Harper is going to be as old next year as Mantle was 
when he broke out of hitting 28300 with 25 home runs and won the triple crown in 56 wow right i mean which we haven't seen the next thing fire on this kid and baseball is afraid to say is that guy that maybe he's the best player ever we don't know mm. how about that they don't like that speculation boy i don't know right. and of course the fact is it is slow and it's slow for a variety of reasons, partly because you got TV time packed into it, partly because analytics and the evolution of thinking about how to play have made the three true things, right? Home runs, walks, and strikeouts more important. Right. Coming off of the discovery that the batting average off of balls in play is almost random, and very few people are consistently good at keeping it high when they hit or low when they pitch. I mean, this new understanding of ball says, let's go deeper into counts, right? Let's take more time. And, of course, team pitching and uh, the, dis you know, the discovery that, uh, that uh, Pryor and, uh, and, uh, and Wood – had <laughs> their arms mm. kind of destroyed by throwing yes. 140 pitches a game. Right. Um, all of this has given this kind of cycle where uh, game times have increased, and particularly for millennials who uh, don't go in for stuff that takes three hours, like opera, <laughs> right or paying attention for a protracted right. period of time right, right? Uh, there's a problem there so baseball's uh, got those issues but it doesn't have the potential death sentence issue that football does right. about health right. and that hockey does about the fact that it's a very ultimately limited uh, market in a, both a national and a global sense. Right. You you, you mentioned Harper, um, Bryce Harper, um, a few minutes ago, and um, I want to ask you a couple of things. One, your thoughts on this past free agent market in baseball, which by all accounts was different, slow, you know, suspect, whatever you want to call it, it was a different market uh, this past offseason. And then with Bryce Harper, assuming he gets to the end of the season and does not sign an extension, which I would be surprised if he did, there's been yeah. some talk of him, you know, being baseball's first $400 million man. Uh, Mike Stanton has a contract of 325 I think. Um right. So what do you think about those two things? One, this past free agent market in particular, do you think it was an anomaly, something that's too soon to call as to what happened here? Or do you have some thoughts about that? And then second, I know you're a Nationals fan, so the idea of Bryce leaving town is not a pleasant thought for you. But um, what do you think about his free agent prospects? Well, I tell you what, let me get right with that because, uh, yeah, I mean, I – what do I do with like my collection of Harper Unis? Right. <laughs> right. So I wear right. Again. When he came up, oh my Lord, his first game in Nats Park, he threw out a guy from deep right at the plate. And it's like, this kid's 19. And this is on top of, in his eighth game, stealing home on Cole Hamels. 
mm-hmm. to teach him a lesson. 19-year-old kid teaching Cole Hamels some respect, right? He is from the planet that Gretzky and Pele and MJ come from. I mean, I've seen it up close, and I, with all due respect to a lot of other guys, he is the promised child. Whoa! Mm-hmm. He is not going to stay in Washington. He's going to be bit away. In fact, I'll tell you, my guess is he goes to uh, the Phillies. Mm-hmm. Um, but because they got the money and the opportunity and the situation and so on and so forth. Uh, but with all that said, um, we will find out what's really going on in the player market next year when Harp and Machado and some other guys, Kershaw, presuming he's okay, uh-huh. uh, go to market and, you know, a bunch of interesting people. Um, Charlie Blackman signed an extension that kept him out that was, I thought, a little south of where the market would be, but he is older, and right. the age thing is part of it. We'll get to that in a moment, and I think he wanted to stay where he was. He is a very free-thinking, on-his-own-page guy. The fact I'm in, I just, I'm crazy about Blackman. Uh, he, he makes up his own mind about stuff, and if he looked up and said, I want to play it out here... In Colorado, I like it. I like the scene. I like the park. I mean, his numbers certainly like the park. Um, Then, all right, that's what it is. A couple of things about this last market. If there's something about the last agreement that was just negotiated that affected the market, it was the player's inability to get the clubs to do something on tanking. I do not think it was the luxury taxes and so on. Those are, I think, grossly overestimated. Uh, I mean, uh, clubs uh, could go out and sign a big, there are four or five clubs that could go out and go over the line, sign a big name, and only pay a couple million, two, three, four, five million dollars in luxury taxes. That's trivial. That does not stop you. In a world where your franchise has gone from 300 million six years ago to 1.5 billion today in value, you support that, right? When Gilbert signed LeBron with the Cavs, he paid a luxury tax of over 300%. On, on some part of LeBron's salary, and he made the remark that if you spend billions for a franchise and you're unwilling to support it, you're the fool. Right. I think that's there. But tanking is an issue. <clears throat> Excuse me. We can point to as many as 10 clubs this year in ball who, at the beginning of the year, were not interested in winning. Now, what's going on in Atlanta, for example, this week? Uh, well, I don't know, the Giants are catching up to them this week. But, uh, you know, the, the Braves are doing better than people thought, and uh, so maybe they're not quite, quote-unquote, tanking. But you've got a lot of clubs that are pursuing that model. Players wa- came with a variety of proposals to address that, and the clubs would not go there under any circumstances. Uh, because I, there are uh, a lot of bottom feeders who are happy to take revenue-sharing money, pocket it, essentially, 
play for draft picks and so on, and then hope they can catch lightning because that model works. Worked in Houston, worked in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Like my, my Lord, Kansas City went to two World Series, right? Uh, and they did it off of that model. I, I can you can point to uh, Pittsburgh a couple of years ago was in the postseason three years ago. You hit right on the draft. You collect uh, your transfer payment from the rich clubs, and uh, it works just fine. I mean, Lord, Oakland's been doing it forever. Pittsburgh, more or less, too. Although, you know, back then, Billy Bean was a genius. Now he looks like the guy who traded Donaldson and Cespedes. Yeah. Uh, So uh, it's the... Uh, if there's something about the CBA that gave rise to this weak market, it's the tanking piece, uh, that there are no restrictions on it, and players are looking very seriously at that, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that some clubs are, too. I think that some of the revenue-sharing payers are wondering why they're getting swung around this way, right? Uh, giving out money and making other guys profitable. The other thing that's there is the bias against older players. Yes. Talk Uh, about that. Right? Well, look, part of that, I don't know how much, but part of it is that the sport is a lot cleaner than it was a while ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had Bonds and the Rocket who were extending their careers with substance. But you also, and I think this is more important, had guys like Randy Velarde, right, who was a yeoman player, a journeyman, whatever the words are for a guy who's not an everyday starter but has an MLB career, right? A lot of guys uh, were, were involved in substances because it allowed them to extend their careers. Uh, and, uh, boy, I tell you for our listeners, if there's one of them out there who will look at me and say, I wouldn't do that. Well, then I mm. mean, your, your next life is assured because you're a saint because <laughs> everybody else would, mm. I mean, there is no question in my mind about that. So the age thing is to some extent related to the much cleaner sport, and there's been a sea change among players. Players have taken the mosaic trip through the wilderness, and a new generation is not interested in this stuff, right? The way that a previous generation was willing to abide by it. Uh, So the players wanted a clean game, and this might be one of the unintended effects. Um, There's two ways that can go. One is uh, maybe we take the whole age pattern of careers and just move it two years up, that players Mm -hmm. don't come up at 25 and leave at 35. They come up at 23 and leave at 33. That's okay. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that means you get more guys like Harp and Machado who are going to free agency in their ahead of their primes. Right. Right. Uh, Right. We saw this with the negotiations for uh, Jason Hayward a couple years ago, right? A guy who came up Mm -hmm. at 20, right? Um, So, you know, maybe it's that. But would 
would be more frightening is, and there's some signs of this. We can talk about that. Uh, that you sign older players in a kind of spot market, right? A kind of emergency break glass market. You sign them to one-year deals kind of cheap, and you use that to manage the service clock on your younger players. Uh Let me give you this example. Neil Walker in New York, right? Now, they've got... Taurus, they've got Andujar, right? They've got a bunch of infield prospects who are supposed to, you know, who everybody agrees are really good and have great potential to be major leaguers. Well, you sign Neil Walker for less money than he's worth. I don't remember the specifics, but I mean, he did not get a great deal. Uh, and he's He's a real player. He's a, as Pinocchio would say, he's a real live boy. And you put him in there and you can manage the service clock on these prospects, right? And say, you know what? I can back him off a couple months and then hold on to him for another year by playing Walker. That would be a frightening dynamic, mm-hmm. right? If in fact, you had fewer older players, but you didn't have more younger players. Right. I don't think I can't tell you that that's happening now. I I don't. I the Walker example is a really good one, but I'm not exactly sure what the next example is. When the Mets say, you know, the Mets did a thing with Todd Frazier, right? Working out great for him, but mm-hmm. it's not clear to me if there was a prospect there that they were, you know, trying to back off. Right. Right. Um, the uh, the Nats, for example, uh, you know, it's it's not their issue with Robles and Soto and where their outfield situation is going to be down the line. Um, so that's the fear that uh, careers are being truncated due to age, and that has to do with analytics, might have to do with PEDs might have to do with fads and trends, mm-hmm. you know, because general managers for all the yammering about analytics are human beings uh, who sometimes trade Donaldson and Cespedes, even right. when they're a genius, right? There's a lot of groupthink among that. In fact, in some ways, the groupthink is, I think, even worse today among managers because they're all drawing from the same analytics well. And because you've got with the the ex, the explosion of front offices, right? Being GM no longer means you're the GM, right? You've seen that. You can mm-hmm. be president for baseball operations, and right. you've got GMs who have who had assistant GMs who are now GMs elsewhere, and who are president of uh, baseball operations in their GM. It's a guy who was a GM somewhere else. They're more concentrated in uh, this new thing about how an Ivy League education seems to be a prerequisite to knowing how to run a ball club. Uh-huh. Boy, yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that nobody asked Gabe Paul about that when I was a kid. <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, there's now, a, a, I think, as much groupthink among management as ever, 
uh, and the idea that analytics uh, is, you know, that the manager is just there to express what analytic results are right. saying. That's, mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's frightening. Watching the Dodgers uh, in the last World Series not let a guy face an order for the third time. Right. right? Because uh, a bunch of numbers said that as opposed to Roger Hornsby 90 years ago pulling waking Grover Cleveland Alexander up mm-hmm. to get him to come in and strike out Lazeri. Right. right. Wouldn't happen today. Not even close wouldn't right. happen today. Hey, get me the 40-year-old alcoholic. Wake him up and come in and get this guy with the bases loaded. <laughs> it's only game seven, inning seven, right? Right now, right. some 28-year-old kid with a math and operations degree from Harvard, right, is sending a note to the dugout about what we're supposed mm-hmm. to do with Lazeri. Yeah. I, you know, here again, I might be like an old grumpy get off my lawn, where's my oatmeal kind of guy, but there are some real issues about uh, how that goes. No question about it. And what about this, Ev, in terms of um, getting getting your thoughts on wearable technology um, and how that's factoring in? Um, and it's not just in baseball. I mean, we see wearable tech all over. Um and it seems, for example, um, some of the star players in the NBA, I think of Steph Curry and some of the other players on the Warriors and other teams, um, seem to embrace the technology and what it can do for them. And certainly there are some benefits, you know, in terms of, you know, improving performance and telling you about recovery and injury prevention and all those types of things. But um, what are your thoughts on, because it's not just that, it's also who has control of the data, right? And and yep. are there going to be, you know, attempts to try to monetize that data? And if so, then ownership becomes a really important point. Um, what are your thoughts on wearable tech, where you see it going and how it's affecting the industry? Well, Yeah, a couple of things. One is water is going downhill. And uh, that wearable tech is happening. And it it is only going to get worse. Uh, There will come a day, and uh, I'm old, but it will be in my lifetime, where you don't need wearable tech. You can put, you can focus uh, a laser type remote reader on a guy and get his heartbeat and respiration. Uh Why? What would make that surprising? Right? Now, StatCast, putting a guy's heartbeat and respiration uh, on TV, well, that's a little scary. uh, And they're, they're... lines that cannot be crossed. And I think that they're about privacy because in some sense, I think that uh, play, it, it will be found that they're not that interesting after a while, that it's, it's too much. The real issue is the training benefit and how that works because there is a bargain with the devil here where players can, uh, you know, let wearable tech or let the whole digital training regimen, right, make them better. But at the same time, 
uh, it, you know, what about the privacy? What about the information? And the question there is, I think, what will be the system that governs medical records? Mm-hmm. That, I think, is the issue more than the limited question of uh, wearable tech. Uh, right now, we have a system where it's not clear what medical information is in a player's file. It's not clear who can get it. It's not clear who actually got it and who looked at it. And I think those are the issues that we need to resolve. I mean, for example, I, I've tried, I uh, spent time imagining a system in which uh, all of a player's medical information is put in a file and uh, every time someone enters to look at that file, they're logged in and the player can get a report about who's looked at their medical information, when, and can have access to that medical information at any time. Uh, That would be a different world. Mm -hmm. If we had that world, then the wearable tech piece might become less of a distinct problem. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think about it in those terms because wearable is one step on the remote, on the road to remote, right? We don't uh, we don't need to put a chip in a guy's uniform to know how fast he's going to reach mm-hmm. a fly ball, right? Right? We can do that with lasers, right? Uh, so that you know, it's going to be like that. That's the future. And I think there are players right now who, uh, when signing deals, when deciding where they want to play, look at the quality of a club's what wearable tech. You know, by in a larger sense, training and technology program, and go where they think the club will help make them better. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's that's happening now. Uh, so, you know, for that bunch of reasons. Uh, the inevitability of it, the fact that it conveys some benefits while it has some cost to players, uh, and that the real inf- the real problem is not that the information is gathered, but what happens to that information. That leads me to think of this as being about the uh, medical information system and players' role in it, and not whether or not you know, we're going to allow it or not allow it because it's it's going to happen. Right. You've got clubs that are at the cutting edge of this and and players on those clubs who's, who are happy it's happening. Right. Who like it, right? right? And it's happening in all sports that way. Right. And I think, you know, what we're seeing as well is that with wearable tech being utilized at the college level, you, you know, athletes are being trained in the expectation of like, this is the norm, right? So I come up into the pro ranks and of course there's wearable tech um, because we see it at the college level as well, where we know some of the thoughts on protection and privacy and all those types of things may be not as vigilantly protected as they are, you know, in a collective bargaining context. So um, that that's a concern for me as well, right? That there's this sort of 
indoctrination into this is the norm and maybe not enough questions are being asked because it's been part of the athlete's life for so long. That is such a great point. I really hadn't even thought about that. But the expectation uh, the expectation is there that it's going to happen. Uh, and so it's part of the same dynamic uh, that uh, led to uh, tighter controls on substances. Mm-hmm. Right. That same kind of expectational issue. Uh, all right. Yeah. Boy, you know, this is a great podcast. I've learned something already. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, and this is probably the last question I'll have for you because this has been great. But, um, and this is more on the personal side. You know, you, you've had an opportunity working for the MLBPA uh, to, you know, uh, work with Don, to work with Mike Weiner. Uh, and now, um, you know, you, you uh, worked with Tony Clark as well. Um, and, you know, for me, you know, I worked both for Don and for Michael and Tony, <laughs> just like you have. And I look at Don and Michael as labor lawyers and, you know, some of the best that I've ever come across. Um, just share with us your thoughts on working with each of these three leaders of the Players Association. Boy, was I afraid you were going to ask me that. <laughs> well, you know, look, the three guys are three aces, but no two were a pair. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, the, to some extent, uh, history provided the right guy at the right time. Uh, Don particularly in the 94-95 episode, um, he, uh, he had the character to be obstinate. He was happy to go that way. He did not care if people uh, liked him. Uh, he's, he's made a point of not caring if people liked him <laughs> in some ways. Uh, and he had an active militant player base uh, that it was was appropriate for uh, his approach, um, but Don saw everything as a conflict, and baseball had moved beyond that. Uh, Don Don won the ninety four ninety five strike. Judge Sotomayor also won it, I guess, but uh, he won it. And uh, in some ways, continued to fight the, the next war with the tools of the last one. Michael uh, was, in fact, a right guy for the era that followed that, that once baseball got over it, that once its bad actors like Stelig and Reinsdorf looked up and said, well, we're, we're going to have to live with this model where we compete and there isn't any salary cap. Right. Uh, he was he was right for that. He had the intellectual breath to understand the the new terrain. And he had a, uh, a more composed character that allowed him to depersonalize what uh, had gone on. <clears throat> Excuse mm -hmm. me. The. Uh, 
You know, if uh, people who knew Michael knew that he had uh, this interesting habit of when he stood in front of you and talked to you, he could not put his two feet on the ground and keep them there for five minutes. <laughs> That's right. right. He would shuffle <laughs> no. around a little bit in place. Yep. Like he was, you know, as opposed to Don, when he was talking, he would pace back and forth, looking at his shoe tops. And, uh, I mean, very often he talked to his shoelaces more than he talked to the people in the room <laughs> while he would go back and forth. Right. And I used to tell people that Don thinks non-linearly and walks linearly, and Michael thinks linearly and walks non-linearly. Um, <laughs> and uh, when, uh, when Michael became ill and it became obvious that he was going to die, uh, in a sense, history provided the next right guy uh, in that the uh, issue... Now that the industry and players were all doing so well that the issue was not a clever lawyer to uh, come up with uh, tactics, but a, a missionary, if not messianic, former player to talk to players about what was really going on, right? That uh, talked about. Uh, how it felt to play and what those concerns were. Uh, I remember bringing somebody to uh, a meeting, I guess it was the 2016, maybe the 2015 meeting, uh, and they saw Tony and uh, came up to me and said, you mean former players haven't always run the union? Uh -huh. <laughs> so right. There was a time when labor lawyers ran this thing. Uh, and, I mean, that's a problem because you see stuff in the press, and I think some of it comes from MLB, that we have lawyers who went to Harvard Law School, mm. and they have a former player, and they don't say it, but everyone knows, of color. Right. And that that kind of elitist and racist approach is uh, is right there looking Tony in the face. Mm. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't uh, remember the greatest labor leader in the history of sports in America was not a lawyer. He was an economist. Right. Milk. <laughs> That's right. I, I hesitate. <laughs> to trot that out, but that's the, that's God's own truth. That's um, right. So uh, there is uh, a bunch of that, and uh, Tony has to face it. There was a uh, an article in the Globe, in the Boston Globe, by Evan Drellich a couple months ago that I thought bordered on the despicable about how uh, the union was being outgunned by MLB because it had a bunch of Ivy League lawyers mm. and so on. And all we had were a bunch of labor lawyers who have invested their career in defending the rights of players. Mm. Uh, boy, that, man, that's rough. 
Yeah. Uh, and to see guys who used to be involved in the union giving that some credibility, that's uh, that's really raw. Uh, Tony negotiated a pretty good deal. Not a great deal, but it was a pretty good deal. And uh, it's not producing uh, negative effects for players in the way that some people uh, allege. Mm -hmm. Moreover, Tony, to go in 2012 from a guy who was active in union business and understood the importance of the union, uh, you, you talk to him and he talks about going to Cooperstown right after he signed with the Tigers in, what, 94, and finding out who Jackie Robinson really was and being shaken to his core by the historic stream that took us to this point, right? To go from that perspective to mastering the business and economic and legal issues from what in many ways was a cold start, one of the mm -hmm. most impressive things I've ever seen. Uh, you can't uh, you can't stop me from uh, being a big fan of his. Uh, it, wow, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so very impressive. You know, um, I was talking about this with Bruce Maxwell, right, mm -hmm. the catcher on the A's, who took a knee during the anthem. Right. Because of his concerns uh, last year, the only ball player to do that. And uh, we were talking one night, and I said to him that history is a funny thing, that more often than not, it puts the right place, the right person in the right place. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, and that you got to think that that's what it did with you. Right? I mean, puts the right person in the right place, and it did it three times right. with uh, the players' union. Uh, and three out of four, because remember, for a couple of months, we had that clown from GE, right? What was his name? You know, it was funny. I was I was trying to think of it as well, and I, 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 I'm blanking <laughs> because it was such a short period of time. Um, yeah, yeah. He was a professional negotiator, yeah. and... Uh, I th Marvin might have lost his mind a little bit, and players might have, and they said, this guy's a negotiator. Right. And, of course, they had nothing but brutal negotiations. So, all right, they thought, let's uh, get a negotiator. And he immediately went on a vacation, and inside of <laughs> half a year, screw it, let's get Don Fear up here. Step right. on up, Don. And they got, uh, and, you know, look, I I met Don 27 years and 50 pounds ago. <laughs> this was the old. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's a funny thing. And uh, I think that, I think that Tony is more the model uh, than the exception because there were a lot more people in labor law when we were coming up. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, and he has shown what a, an intellectually gifted and conscious former player can do. Right. Yeah. 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 He's an, he's an impressive, he's an impressive guy. No question about it. 
Um, but yeah, you know, having worked for all three, um, all three of these men that we're talking about, Don, Michael, and Tony, um, like you said, all, all three are different, um, but all three impressive in their own right. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, but and I got to tell you, this has been great. Um, you know, we, you and I, from time to time have our, our chats offline, you know, about different aspects of the industry, but, you know, um, I wanted to be able to have you on, on the show today, because I think, um, you know, I've come away learning a lot, you know, speaking with you. And I just believe that, um, you know, our listeners will be able to do the same. And so I appreciate you taking some time coming on today. Um, but before you go, um, you know, right now, uh, how's life treating you? You know, you, you sort of step back a little bit. I know you're keeping your hands into in, in various things, but um, how's life treating you overall? And I don't know, are you retired, semi-retired? How how do you look at it? Oh, I, I'm more or less retired. My relationship with Tony and with Don over at hockey and uh, also with Bob Foose at soccer, mm-hmm. uh, a great guy. Um, it's kind of like in case of emergency, break glass, you know, it's right. like that. Or in fact, when I'm really feeling full of myself, which is usually, uh, I tell people <laughs> that... I'm uh, like that old character Hess on The Sopranos, right, who uh, used to be involved with the mob, but now he's got a horse ranch out in the country, right. and Tony comes to see him now and say, kill that guy? Yeah, I think you ought to kill that guy. Um, <laughs> I'm flattering myself, but um, so I keep my hands in. Uh, Coleman Bazelon, who's an economist that I know is now doing most of uh, the work over uh, with Tony, mm-hmm. and uh, they got themselves a hey, smarter than I am. Uh, and when he gets some more experience, he'll be unambiguously better than I am. Mm. Um, look, as for me, I am taxing God's ability to give. I mean, <laughs> there got to be times when he looks up and says, "I don't know why I'm giving Ev more, but I just feel like I gotta." <laughs> I, you know, I wish I could rip some of my luck out of my chest mm-hmm. and give it to somebody else because I live off in the woods in West Virginia. I do a little bit now and then uh, with the two sports. I've gotten rid of most of my other. I have a, There's a whole bunch of people who think of me as a guy in a suit who does corporate work. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're fascinated by the fact that I do uh, stuff with sports unions. And there are guys at the sports unions who forget about the fact that there are people who think of me as a guy in a suit somewhere else. Right. Um, but right now, front of low biz, uh, I'm working on my third novel, and that is most of my quote-unquote work time right behind that is my garden and my orchard and keeping those up to speed. Mm -hmm. And right behind that are uh, rehabbing my various arthritic joints. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you you know, I'm I'm 67. Boy, I wish I could talk to my 27-year-old. Don't you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Relax. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fine. And for those of the listeners who want to endure it, Getting old is the coolest thing I ever did. Man, if mm. I had known how cool it was, I'd have done it quicker. <laughs> because, uh, 
grace that has been forced on me in life. Uh, It would have done a lot for me 20, 30, 40 Mm -hmm. years ago. That's for darn sure. How about that? How about that? You know, my my family is together, and Mm -hmm. I can put dinner on the table, and I can do stuff like write my novel and... (laughs) You know, mess around in the garden or spend an hour rehabbing my knee? Come on. Right. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, it, man, on my tombstone, they will say he got away with it. (laughs) 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 And I'll say this. We, you know... We've been talking about these things together for now 14 years, Uh and in a lot of ways, uh, your listeners have been privy to one of those conversations, and so uh, I asked them to be judicious in what they heard. (laughs) Sure. There you go. That's right. There you go. That's right. Yeah, but it's been great. And you're absolutely right. This, to me, was like so many of the conversations we've had. And for that, I'm really appreciative because that's what I was looking, you know, to capture today. And um, uh, and I'm really glad that, uh, you know, those who are listening, I think they, uh, you know, they, they got something to remember and to take with them. So, Ev, I appreciate the time, man. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I'm looking to to get to the point like you are, maybe in a couple of years, where I can be writing novels and doing some gardening and things like that. But unfortunately, on this day, I'm going to have to get to work. So <laughs> I'm well, heading to the you office. You and I will go our separate ways right now. But uh, this was the best of all worlds, having a chat with you and putting down something of value for people to hear. So right. let's call it a win and hope it's not our last win for the day. That's right. Well, Ever, I appreciate it. Uh, and at some point down the road, uh, don't be surprised if I call you to, to come back on again. I'm always here for you. You be well, man. Okay, you too. Thanks, Ev. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye. That was part two of our interview with economist Ev Ehrlich. Talking with Ev is always a treat. I always come away with new knowledge or a new perspective. And the way he delivers it, man, there's not another like him. But that's it for now. But we'll be back. In the meantime, hit us up. Let us know how we're doing. We'd love to hear from you. But right now, we're going home Scully style. Until we meet again, be good. We'll catch up with you next time on Sports 360.